Will you stand with me this morning as we read our text that Richard will be teaching from today? There's actually two. One is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 and verse 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Psalms 104 verses 10 through 16 says, He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine with gladness hum, uh, gladdens humans' hearts. Oil to make their faces shine and bread to sustain their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered and the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thanks, Nick. Good morning, everyone. I just swallowed water in the wrong way. Excuse me. <clears throat> So uh, we're continuing a series that we began last week, and if you have a little booklet, this is the place to go to understand <coughs> excuse me, both the nature of the series and the outline uh, for, the, for the sermons, and there's discussion questions so you can receive today and then talk about it during the week, and today we're looking at a storyline that runs through the Bible and covers many themes, and today's theme is creation. And in every case, there's a vision God creates. There's disruption. Things fall apart. Right at the bottom of the trajectory, Christ enters in offering hope. And then the story ends with the culmination. And we'll look at this over and over again in the next few weeks. This week, looking at this storyline through the lens of creation. God had a vision for creation and our relationship with it. It's presently distorted, and it's our calling to recover that vision. And so Take a moment, if you would, join me, and we'll pray together, and we'll look at the scripture. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls today. We're mindful that we gather at a time when uh, there are visible signs that our creation is torn, certainly in racism and violence, shootings, in refugee crises, economic crises, and hunger, poverty, illiteracy. But we're mindful as well, if we pay attention, that the earth itself is struggling. And we have a role in that that is not unrelated to all those other problems. And so would you teach us now through your Holy Spirit? Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We'll thank you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Scientists are increasingly discovering that you are at your healthiest when you are encountering nature in some way. There's a book, in fact, entitled Your Brain on Nature, The, the Science of Nature's Influence on Your Health and Happiness. And lots of different studies are articulated within this text to show that when you are in nature, you are a better person. You're a better person. Uh, some, adult, uh, some adults in a, an adult care center in Texas, for example, 
They were in their rooms and in the dining room, and then uh, a group said, well, what would happen if we took them outside every day and let them sit outside? Immediately, the, the stress hormone cortisol began to de dramatically decrease in their, in their bodies physiologically. Just being outside, even in Texas, the stress level uh, <laughs> like decreased, right? In Kansas, electroencephalograms hooked up to your brain showed less stress, like when people uh, uh, have a houseplant in, in their room, in their, in their convalescent senior living center. And uh, I'll give you just one other example. There are many examples, but the <clears throat> one of the most powerful to me, there's a two-story factory. And so the owners of the factory uh, ran this experiment, and they put on the first floor where everybody's just doing kind of this automated work eight hours a day. On the first floor, they put everyone on that floor in line of sight with a house plant, just a house plant. Second floor, no house plants. And after six months, this is what they noticed, 40% uh, decrease in absenteeism if there's a house plant there. Is that ridiculous? So, I mean, these guys, being smart, they put house plants on the second floor as well because they want, they want productivity. And when, when you encounter creation, something actually happens to your body. In fact, in Japan now, uh, if you go to the doctor in Japan, you could be prescribed uh, not only medication like a, a pharmaceutical, it could be part of your prescription to, to do what is called in Japan forest bathing. In other words, uh, t you know, here, take two aspirin and walk through the forest, call me in the morning, right? In other words, why would they do that? Because scientists now know when you walk in the forest, uh, your body creates more immune cells. Your levels of cortisol, stress hormone, decrease. Your pulse decreases. Your breathing aligns just by walking in the forest. And so we are coming to discover that we are made to interact with creation. E.O. Wilson, a biologist, he, has, he created a word for this called biophilia, the love of creation. And the overwhelming consensus of biologists is not only are we made for a relationship with the earth, but if we neglect our calling to interact with creation, we suffer, physiologically we suffer. In fact, there's, in this book, Your Brain on Nature, I'm quoting now, as far back as a century ago, writers were concerned that industrialization had placed a machine in the garden, one capable of dramatically changing our natural world. We, and of course, we see that today, don't we? Uh, many of us have dramatically reduced the amount of time that we spend outdoors because we don't need to spend any time outdoors anymore. I can go from my climate-controlled house to my climate-controlled car, and I can sit on the freeway, and then I can get out, and I can go into my office, and then I can come back, and I can go home, and I can, you know, rinse, repeat over and over and over again, and that will be physiologically, never mind spiritually, physiologically, That'll be bad for me. Your brain on nature, the thesis is this, we're made to interact with creation and we, we lose that interaction at our peril. It's one of the reasons we have a wilderness ministry here. There are many other reasons, but that's one of the reasons, you, because you're made to be there. And in fact, when you're in creation, you're, the, the scriptures tell us that one of the reasons it's life-giving is because you are reading from a book. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And what that means, I mean, you could translate it this way, the heavens are preaching God's glory. The heavens are preaching God's glory. And so we can know through uh, the heavens, in a sense, that, that you know, this is what we're made for. The life for which we're created uh, is a life in relationship with 
the created order. And so when we're out in nature, God is speaking to us. There's the book of the Bible, but there's the second book, creation. And Romans 1 says this, everyone in the world, whether they've ever heard about Jesus, whether they ever have a Bible in their hand or not, everyone knows that there's one God who made everything. And how does everyone know? The, the testament of creation. That's how everyone knows. So creation is compelling, as we'll see in a moment. And because creation is compelling, God has called us as humans to care for creation. That's our calling. And so how do we do that? And what does that mean? That's what we're looking at today. So we're going to begin by looking at God's vision for creation, how it was disrupted, where the hope comes from in Christ, what that looks like, and how the story ends. Then what is our role in that? We begin with the creation of the cosmos, right? And so in Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what's significant for us to see is uh, back in, if you skip down to verse 31, God creates everything in Genesis 1, and everything's good, 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 good. And then in Genesis 1, 31, God saw that he made everything, and behold, it was very good, evening, morning, the sixth day. And then what's significant, and we kind of skip it over sometimes, is Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, because in Genesis 2, 2, significant, this is what it says, God rested. And rested is very important, and here's why. Every uh, Mesopotamian culture had its own creation narrative, and in every creation narrative, a temple was built, right? And in every other creation narrative, the temple that was built was, was built by humans who were kind of slaves of the gods, and so they built a temple, and the temple is known all throughout this era and this time and place, Mesopotamian culture, the temple is the place where God rests, okay? So the temple is the place where God rests, and in every other culture, the temple is human architecture. In this creation narrative, the, the, the temple is the earth, and God creates the heavens and the earth, and then it says in Genesis 2, once God saw it, God rested, God rested. And so God made it, not us, and God rested in it, but it's not made with human hands, it's not a building, the temple is everything that God has created. That's where God intends to rest. And the word rest is important because rest, I'm sorry, I don't mean to point at you with my pen. That's just rude. Uh, because rest is significant in this way. Rest means uh, that, uh, uh, not that God is asleep, but that everything is self-sustaining. Has anyone ever had a good day at work where there are no problems? Has that ever happened? Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. I'm amazed at how few hands go up every time I've asked this today, like five hands go up. Yeah, there's always something that goes wrong. But when God's at rest, the reason God's at rest is because everything is self-sustaining. Does this make sense? So, so God doesn't need to, God's not up there thinking right now, man, I wonder how I'm going to provide water for Seattle. Oh, no, God set it in motion already. It's called the hydration cycle. The Pacific Ocean, the sun is shining, the water evaporates as it goes up. It hits cool air, it condenses, it turns into a cloud. The prevailing westerly winds blow that cloud our direction. The cascades prevent the water from going to Spokane. They stay here. The <laughs> rain falls. It's called the Cedar River Watershed. And uh, when you drink, you'll get a drink of water and that, out of that fountain. And that, that comes from that rain into that river, from that Pacific Ocean. And then the river will drain back into the ocean. It will happen again. God doesn't have to do a thing. God's resting. So that's the idea, Right? So, so God has created it, and he created it to be self-sustaining. And the most beautiful articulation of that self-sustaining nature of creation is in Psalm 104, where you see the hydration cycle and uh, food provided for animals, and it's all there. It's beautiful. David pondered it. He wrote a poem about it. Great. And now, our role as humans, 
Uh, we're to care for the earth so that the earth remains a place that's self-sustaining. That's our, that's our calling. We're to care for the earth so that the earth remains a place that's self-sustaining. Genesis 1, 28 and 29, God says to the, to the, to the humans, to the man and the woman, he says, look, be fruitful, uh, fill the earth, right? And then he says, he says, subdue it and rule over it. And then in Genesis 2.15, it says God placed man in the garden to keep and, and cultivate, to keep and cultivate the garden. And so, so we have this calling here uh, to care for the earth in such a way that the earth uh, will be sustainable. Uh, and, and so cultivate means make the, we're, our calling is to make the land productive. We have a role in making the land productive. And keeping means make that productivity sustainable. So we're called to cultivate and keep, make the land both productive and sustainable. And God provided means to carry this out all through the Old Testament when God has a nation intended to represent his heart. God says, if you're going to represent my heart, this is how I want you to treat the earth. And so, for example, in Proverbs 12, verse 10, God speaks of how we're called, as the people of God, to care for our animals. This is what it says, a righteous man regards the life of his animals. Even his animals, God cares for the well-being of the animals. And, and, and you may think, well, you know, I care for my pet. This isn't talking about pets. This is talking about how do we care for all the, all the wildlife, and particularly how do we care for the animals that become our, like, our food? How do we do that? When I was living in Los Angeles, I would drive down to uh, Biola University, and I'd go through La Mirada, and the particular route that I had to take to bring me to La Mirada, I would drive right in the middle of Orange County, Southern California, there was this gigantic industrial cattle farm. And the reason you know it's industrial is because it's not a large piece of land, but there are hundreds and hundreds of cattle, and they're all in these little pens where they can't move. And how are they fed? Well, they're given, you know, food is brought in, and they're injected with antibiotics to make them fat and make them grow fast, and they're slaughtered, and that, that becomes our steak, do you see? And this is, this, is not Prover- this is not Proverbs 12. This is not caring for the animal. There's something inherently wrong in that system, just as it's wrong to over-harvest the oceans, just as it's wrong to slaughter all the buffalo, just as it's wrong to slaughter all the deer up uh, amongst the First Nation people in f- the far north of Canada, where God's vision was that we would care, the beasts had dignity. And God even goes so far in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, as to tell us that, oh, that's right, when you have a Sabbath, that day of not resting, it's not just for you, it's for your animals as well. And so your beasts shall also enjoy the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to be practiced by people and animals. Why? Because this is all part of God's creation. This is God's vision. God goes to great lengths to show us how to care for the earth, even telling us what to do in the disposal of human waste, because human waste is a public health issue. And if you don't believe me, go to Kathmandu sometime, or many places in Africa, where disease is rife because of something as simple as disposing of human waste. So, so God cares about these things. God cares about the soil, and that's why God said every seventh year, allow the soil to rest, don't, uh, don't harvest. Don't plant and don't harvest. That way the soil will replenish because just as you are made for day and night, activity and rest, work six days, rest one, the soil also needs to restore. And so you'll spend every, and then during that year, things will grow, but the things that grow, those things will belong uh, to the poor and the animals, not to you. So you don't have to worry. The land will be so abundant because you're caring for it in a way that's sustainable 
that you will have enough in one year. I'm giving you a gift. You don't even have to plant every seven years. And then every 50 years, all land refers to, reverts back to its original owner. How, how crazy is that? This, this kind of spells the end to this endless upward mobility. Everybody migrate, the few migrated to the 1% and more and more people uh, living in poverty. That could never happen if every 50 years we all surrendered whatever we own and it goes back to the original owner. And what all God is trying to say there, it's, this is not about capitalism, socialism, communism. It's not a political statement. It's this statement. The earth is the Lord's. It's not mine, not yours, not, not America's to harvest however we want. The earth belongs to the Lord. And to, so therefore our calling is to care for and live in relationship with creation in such a way that we steward the earth so that we are both cultivating and keeping the earth so that it's both productive and sustainable. And in our world, uh, productivity and sustainability have often uh, been held at odds with each other. And, and, and so a, a group kind of on the far left, radical environmentalists say, do you know what? Um, we care so much about sustainability that we don't care about productivity anymore. And so the most important thing is the earth, not people. <laughs> and so, no, uh, let everything grow and, and don't harvest anything because it's, it's all about the earth. And humans are just, you know, one piece in a cog. That, that's one side. Like, uh, sustainability at the expense of productivity. And then, of course, on the, on the far right, you have productivity at the expense of sustainability, right? Harvest, over-harvest, doesn't matter. As long as your generation can be fed, that's good enough. And so the buffalo disappear, and the elk disappear, and the deer disappear, and the fish disappear. And it's happening all around us to this very day in the name of economic growth. So <laughs> productivity at the cost of sustainability. Sustainability at the cost of productivity. Isn't there a third way? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Because <laughs> that's really what the gospel is about. But when we live in, in, in relationship with creation properly, creation testifies of the glory of God. And, and, and if, we will, if, we, if we steward creation and enjoy creation, creation speaks in a... In a, in a, in a it, Creation has a sermon. It's better than my sermons. Years ago, we ran a wilderness ministry up in the North Cascades, right by North Cascades National Park, actually. And so we, had a, we did a high school week every summer. High school students, having finished high school, getting ready for college, would come, and I would try and kind of prepare them for college by teaching apologetics, right? Like how you know the resurrection is true, how you know the Bible is true, how you know the virgin birth is true, how you can trust the gospel, how you need to follow Christ, why you need to be a disciple. And so it's heady, it's intellectual, it's logical, uh, it, it, and it's, it's a little bit, in retrospect, perhaps sterile, but it's what I would do. And so these students would come, and I remember, I'll never forget one week, um, there's like 15 students, and I'm teaching in my house, and in the very back, sitting in the back, is a girl, and she's totally checked out. She's not even paying attention. She's doodling on her paper. She's looking out the window. This is pre-cell phone days, so she doesn't, she's not doing that, but she would have been. If she had a phone, she'd be on it. I know it, right? So she's just gone. She's gone. And you guys don't know this about me, or maybe you do, but when I'm doing what I do here, if one of you were gone, it bugs me. I'm not mad at you, but I take, I'm like this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this, right? And I get more animated or whatever I have to do. I'm going to win you back, man. I'm going to clap. I'm going to tell a joke. I got to get you in. And so here's this gal, and she, no matter what I do, I'm telling jokes, she's just chewing her gum, looking down at the floor. It's like she doesn't care. So afterwards, I immediately, when I approach her, I say, hey, 
Want to talk about what you heard today? She says, no, not really. Oh, well, like, you look like you were disengaged. Do you have, a, do you have questions? No, I don't have any questions. Do you, do you agree with anything I said? Or No, actually, I don't agree with anything you said. <laughs> well, then you must have questions. No. Uh, Mr. Dalton, let's make this clear. I mean, this is the first night, so let me just, I'll just tell you. I'm an atheist. And uh, this, this is all, we're in a random accident here. And you can do what you do, and I'll be polite, but I'm here because it was free for me, and my friend brought me, and I'm not interested. So can we just have a truce? And I was like, no, <laughs> no truce. <laughs> We're gonna argue, you know, and the, all week. Well, and just flatline. So some, at some point in the week, we go up, and we take a hike up in the Sauk Mountain. And uh, it, from the top of this mountain, you can look south, you see Mount Rainier. You look to the northeast, and Mount Baker is right in front of you. You look straight to the west, it's Vancouver Island, it's the San Juan Islands, it's the Puget Sound. We're there at sunset. We bring, you know, hot dogs and veggie dogs for the atheists, and somebody's got a guitar there. <laughs> we do, you know, we're doing our, we're doing our meal, and dun, 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 and someone's singing, you know, and then everywhere we're all singing songs like the ones we've sung today about create, how beautiful creation is and all that stuff. People are testifying a little bit, giving testimony of what they've learned so far this week. And I'm watching this gal, you know, and she's just, she's just checked out. And then they start singing another song, and the sun is just dropping. Everything around is spectacularly beautiful, and she just leaves. She just walks away from the whole group. And I go, typical, you know, hard-hearted, whatever. You know, like, I'm going to go rein her in. And I walk over, and she's crying. I go, are you okay? She goes, uh, sort of okay, but not really. Uh, she says, I'm just sitting here and I know that God exists and now I want to know God. And I was like this, you can't know God, you're an atheist. <laughs> she said, I'm not anymore. I said, which sermon convinced you? Like, was it the resurrection thing or, <laughs> you know, we, I, we had the original manuscripts. And she's like this, she says, Richard, look around. I can't even explain it. Other than this, I know. By the end of the week, she's a Christian. By the end of the next week, she's baptized. Best sermon ever, it's all around us. And can I just say, we live in a place where people already know this. The, I mean, the church in Seattle is REI, three letters. <laughs> and people are out, and, and, and perhaps we don't even see that their hearts are longing for the very thing that God wants for them. To be people both enjoying and caring for creation in a way that's sustainable and productive. So creation speaking, that's God's design. Now in disruption, what happens is because of sin, our relationship with creation is corrupted, right? And so in Genesis 3, God says, from now on, the earth will, there will be thorns and thistles, and, you know, we could, argue, we could argue about how literal to take that, but however you take it, there's a point here, which is this. The, increasing over time, the land is going to lose its productivity. And it does. And we know that. Uh, and, and, and there are reasons that the land loses its productivity that we'll see in a moment. And then in Genesis chapter 9, God says also our relationship with the animal kingdom will change. After, uh, after the flood with Noah, there's a, God makes a covenant with Noah, and God says uh, to Noah, look... Uh, from now on, all the animals will be afraid of humans. And everybody in the room, we know, you know that. I mean, if you live in Seattle, 
there's squirrels and there's raccoons and there's all, you know, there's all this, it's kind of domestic, but it's, it's wildlife. And they don't come running to you ever, right? They're afraid, they're afraid of you. Where we live, there's elk and there's bears sometimes. But even bears, they're like, they're, every, they're all afraid of us, right? And, and one of the reasons they're afraid of us is because they know we will kill them, right? And so it's an adversarial relationship. It is and has always been so. So, so uh, what happens then, and the reason that we have this adversarial relationship with the animals and the reason that there's thorns and thistles is because uh, we began, through greed, to abuse the land. We begin to abuse the land. You see it in the scriptures. When, when, look, when we violate the Sabbath and we drive our animals seven days a week, they lose their productivity, just like you lose your productivity when you drive yourself seven days a week. When you drive the soil then the soil loses its capacity to produce a yield. And when it loses its capacity, then you have to fortify the soil with petrochemical fertilizers to, to restore the yield. But in spite of the fact that you're doing that to restore the yield in the short term, what you're actually doing is destroying the topsoil. And we've lost a third of our arable agricultural land on this planet over the last 30 years. One third. <laughs> because topsoil is disappearing and the world is turning into a desert. And it's turning into a desert because we've, we've no longer embraced God's way of caring for the land in a way that's both productive and sustainable. So violation of the Sabbath, violation of the land, buffalo slaughter, deer slaughter, elk slaughter, everything I've already mentioned, and all of this results in this, uh, the, the earthing of a desert. And, uh, and industrial agriculture rises up where maximum short-term yield is the most important thing. And we overharvest the land and we overharvest the, the, the oceans. Not to feed everyone, but to allow those doing the overharvesting to, uh, to get rich because we still have a global hunger problem. <laughs> and uh, the next crisis on the horizon, we're told, is, is a water crisis because lack of access to clean water is not a shrinking problem, it's a growing problem in our culture. And so you kind of summarize all this and you come to Romans 8. Verses 20 to 22. And Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, he gives a voice to creation. He says, you know, if creation could speak, what would creation say, in a sense? And this, listen to this. Creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption, and move into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now that's a little technical, but if we go on, Paul unpacks it. This is what he says. Creation groans. Creation is groaning. Groaning because of loss of species. Uh, groaning because of global warming. Uh, groaning because of desertification. Uh, the loss of topsoil. The loss of access to clean water. All this stuff is a sign that creation is groaning, right? And then... It says creation is longing for our renewal. Why? Because the reason creation is groaning is because of the choices that we are making, abdicating our role as stewards, and instead viewing the earth as, as uh, something solely to be harvested for personal gain, short-term gain. And so when we lose our commitment to stewardship of the earth, the earth pays a price, the earth groans, Right? And so the, the, kind of the roots of this is our own disregard for creation. 
cultivating without keeping, the challenge of capitalism. We cultivate, but we don't care about sustainability. And this, I mean, this just needs to change. So this moves us then into the kind of the, the question of hope. And Christ, we know from the book of Revelation, says, I'm going to make everything new. But often in the scriptures, uh, the people who are painting the picture of this hope are painting the picture of the hope from before the cross. In other words, the, the scriptures I want to show you now that show you how God is renewing things, they all come from the prophets in the Old Testament. So they're, they're looking ahead past Jesus to Jesus, not only crucified, resurrected, but reigning. And then they're, they're painting this picture. What will the world look like when Christ is once again reigning, right? And so there's a few verses that I want to show you here from the Old Testament that are, that are poignant because they point to a restored creation, right? Uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 13 is where I want to just take you for just a second here. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed, and the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And what, what he's saying here is uh, uh, you people are living now in a moment in history when there's not enough food. I mean, when Amos wrote, there was famine. You read it, Amos chapter 5. So it's famine. But the day is coming, says Amos, when the yield will be so abundant that the land will continually be producing fruit so that just as the grape picker is picking, there's a, there's a, new, like there's a new harvest coming in, excuse me, there's a new planting coming in behind. So there's always a new planting because there's always a yield and the land will be abundantly, abundantly fruitful. And so in Amos 9, God says, look, the day is coming, the restored day, and in the restored day, the watchword will be abundance. Enough for everyone, Right? And then in Isaiah chapter 35, he says, in those days, and again, being written in a time of drought, Isaiah's looking ahead, he says, hey, when I look ahead, you know what I see? Even the desert I see blooming. Even the desert is blooming. It's remarkable. In other words, God is restoring creation. The lion is lying down with the lamb. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 and 7. Relationship with the animal kingdom is restored. Hosea chapter 2. Verses 18 and forward is a remarkable passage because in this passage, God says, in those days, and he's speaking about the end time, in the time of the reign of Christ, in those days, God says, I will make a covenant, listen to this, I will make a covenant with the wild animals and the birds and the insects and the fertile ground. God will make a covenant with the wild animals. Now, why does that need to happen? Because the wild animals are disappearing all around us. Why? Because they're over-harvesting. Do you see? Sustainable without keeping. Making productive, but without sustainability. And so, so we're seeing here a new world order in a sense. And in this new world order, everything is sustainable because God has made a covenant with the animals, the birds, the insects, even the soil. It's amazing. And because of that, says Hosea 2, people will do away with the sword. Because in the end, friends, uh, wars are ultimately resource wars. Water wars, food war, uh, wars, rare, rare earth mineral wars that make our phones, resource wars. And then God says, nope, when, when, when Christ reigns, everything is restored, 
and humanity's role living under Christ and living under his lordship, humanity will steward the earth in such a way that there will be enough. And then, and then all weapons will disappear and all war will disappear and all disease will disappear and this is the world for which we're created. And of course, then this leads to culmination. The end of the story is in Revelation chapter 22. And in Revelation 22, we read about kind of the end of time and we read this. John, who writes Revelation, he sees in a vision. He says, Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In other words, can you picture a throne and a river pouring out from the feet of the throne? And on the throne is Christ. And this river then, on either side of the river, is the tree of life. And the tree of life is bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And so in this moment now, uh, the river of life flowing from Christ's throne with a tree of life bearing fruit, this is the moment when all the nations are healed. And so you read in Isaiah 2 about the healing of the nations and you realize, do you know what? Ah, this restored environment isn't just critical to the environment. It's not just that the environment now re, uh, regains its capacity to articulate God's character through creation. Environment is a justice issue. Because when I, those leaves, eating those leaves, that's the healing of the nations. And in Isaiah 2, it says when the nations are healed, they all join hands and they ascend the mountain of God and they say, come, let's go and ascend the mountain of the Lord that we may learn of God's ways. And when he teaches us his ways, there is justice, there is restoration, there is reconciliation. Every weapon is melted down into a tool of agriculture. And never again, it says Isaiah 2, never again will they know war. Can you wait for that? No more Oklahoma, no more North Carolina, no more Burlington, Washington, no more Syria, no more poison gases, no more cancer, no more death, no more tears, no more isolation, no more loneliness. Why? Because God's restored everything, including and foundationally, the environment. You think the environment matters? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So our calling is to live into this now. (laughs) Does that make sense? In other words, our calling is to live in such a way that we portray the future in the choices that we make. And how do we do that? I would just suggest to you that the means for living into God's future follows a clear pattern. We're made for intimacy with God. We're made to walk with God. And when you go back to Genesis, when Adam was walking with God in the garden, when he's walking with God, then the gifts of God are appreciated by Adam. Intimacy with God leads to appreciation for the gifts of God. And anyone in the room who's ever received a special gift from someone understands what I'm talking about here. Because a special gift, ultimately it's not about the gift, it's about Oh, this one loves me, and this is a reminder of God's, this is a reminder of God's love. So I had, um, a few Christmases ago, my son gave me the best gift ever. I'll just tell you a little bit about it so you can get a picture of what I'm saying here. Uh, there's a guy, he's a climber in the Cascade. His name is Fred Becky. He's this old man. He's been climbing since the 30s. He's climbed everything from the center of British Columbia down into, the, into Northern California. He's climbed every mountain, and he's written three guidebooks, and he's like... If I wasn't a Christ follower, I would want to be him. Like he's just a dirt bag, he's just a dirt, he just climbs. That's all he does. Who needs money? I'm just going to spend my life climbing. And, you know, who needs to serve anyone other than me? 
So, like, on that, only on the climbing front is he a hero. I just love that he's still doing it at 90, right? Well, anyway, my son's working at Patagonia, and because he works there, returns that come in, employees get first dibs to take and just keep. And uh, you earn the capacity to take from the return box by not driving a car to work. And my son only rides his bike, so he's always at the top of the list, basically, always getting free stuff. This guy, Fred Becky, comes in to return a jacket, right? And so I, this Christmas time, I open the box. It's Fred Becky's climbing jacket. <laughs> and I'm like this. Best gift ever. And my kids are like this. My other two daughters, we're done. Why ever give dad a gift again? Like, this can't be beat. And, and so, like, there's this appreciation. And, and, and when I, so when I see that thing and I wear it around the house, it, it's not about Fred Becky, it's about my son. Does this make sense? And so what am I saying? Uh, I went running yesterday morning. It's foggy and I'm up there in the mountains. And, and I, at one moment, the sun was shining through the fog onto this little fir tree and the, there were all kinds of droplets of water that were being magnified. And you could see the spider web also dripping with moisture. And I just stopped. And I, and I said, this is a gift right now. This is a gift from God. This beauty is a gift. This sustainability, this reminder the seasons are coming again is a gift. It's worship. Look, you can tell people to care for the earth, but care actually comes on the far side of appreciation. And appreciation comes on the far side of intimacy. Really, the starting point is what? Intimacy. And why is this challenging for us? Because we are, we're duped, all of us in the room. Uh, Annie Dillard tells a story in one of her books. She, she's a nature author. And she tells a story about a, a big jar with a bunch of beautiful female monarch butterflies in the jar. And then she puts in a male in. But also in the jar is a cardboard female butterfly, right? And she's bigger than all the real ones and shinier than all the real ones. And the male spends his entire life trying to mount the cardboard butterfly. Do you understand? Like, this is, I said this in every service, we're mounting cardboard butterflies. We are, we are. Oh, what do you mean? Well, maybe you don't know what I mean, so let me explain it to you. <laughs> what I mean is this. We live in an, an industrial world that's moved us, moved us indoors, and now we live in a virtual world that's moved us inside our heads. And I just returned from speaking at a, at a university in British Columbia, and I would say that the number one problem, particularly among males, but among the entire generation, the number one problem is this. We're so cut off from reality that we're, we're dying in terms of our capacity to enjoy reality. We're cut off. And so because I live in a virtual world of porn, I don't know how to relate to women. And because I live in a world of uh, virtual video games, I, d I don't know how to actually compete. And because I live in a, in a virtual world of fantasy sports leagues, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to live socially. And so do you know what's disappearing? Really basic stuff is disappearing. Eye contact is disappearing. Handshakes are disappearing. Hugs are disappearing. Scent, the, the appreciation of scent is disappearing. Why? Because we're living in our heads. It's a, it's, a, it's a cardboard butterfly. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we are seeking to find meaning in that which can never give life because God didn't make it. But what did God make? The heavens and the earth. And what did he call them? Very good. Life-giving. 
That doesn't mean you have to go hiking. Maybe you hate hiking for some weird reason. I don't know why you would. <laughs> if you do, fine. But can I just say at least this? Adopt a houseplant. Do you know what I mean? Bring it in and enjoy it and water it and recognize God made this. And this is just a, a symbol that God is deeply, infinitely committed to blessing you with water and food and beauty and health and hugs and life. Turn your phone off. Get outside. Pay attention. Appreciate. Worship. And then you'll steward. And you'll know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. Jesus, I think for many of us in the room, we're overstimulated with a false reality and missing the simple beauty of what you've created. Would you just by your Holy Spirit's power show us each a step to take toward intimacy with you that we might then enjoy that which you've created and pause and give thanks and in giving thanks be transformed. Guide us into these realities. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's worship together and allow God to speak to us about next steps we can take to be stewards enjoying and caring for the gifts that God has given us in creation.